Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for Black women by Black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as Black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal, and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. We have a very exciting guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Marie Brown Mercadell. She is a retired human services professional and she's served communities in North Carolina, Texas, California, and Louisiana. She's also served on statewide committees in California that were designed specifically to address the inequities in the child welfare systems. Dr. Marie has also conducted trainings and keynote speeches for large audiences with a focus on trauma-informed healing employee engagement, disruptive innovation strategies, and racial equity. Dr. Marie has also experienced serving individuals with developmental disabilities, behavioral issues, at-risk youth, and older adults. And possibly the most exciting part of what Dr. Marie does, she is the author of her memoir, Getting to My Enough. It's a story of faith, resilience, and survival. Dr. Marie's frank descriptions of her life and her vulnerability are proof that healing out loud after living through trauma is possible. Now let's meet Dr. Marie. All right, Dr. Marie, we are going to go ahead and jump into the Fast and Curious segment. And for those of you that are new to Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, this is our, uh, you know, we're going to get to know Dr. Marie a little bit more. So I just get a bunch of random questions that I found on the internet or that I make (laughs) up in my head. And Dr. Marie Marie is going to answer them. She's going to tell us a story, give us a quick answer, whatever it may be. But you got three minutes. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. In five words, describe your recent trip to South Africa. The most amazing experience ever. Oh, I love that. Okay. What was your favorite part? Seeing um, the site where Nelson Mandela was captured, learning Mm -hmm. about his history and actually going to have um, lunch in um, the village, a village in Niza that really showed, um, you know, some of the deeper parts that, that you don't see on, on television, not the typical tourist spots, but, you know, to really hear um, how people are actually living and just to see that although they have so little, they're so grateful and so happy. Mm. And that was, that was a difference, a very big difference in living here in our, in our lifestyles here in, in the U.S. and seeing that we are always looking for so much more and seeing that they were really happy and content with, with what they had, which was not a whole lot. Mm. Was this a trip that was like a bucket list trip or is this like your second or third time to wow. South Africa? Wow. So listen, the first time I was getting ready to go to South Africa in 2019, like literally going to the airport in an hour, I was living in California. My sister lives here in North Carolina and she got really sick and was placed with a respirator. And so instead of um, coming, going to Africa, you know, what are you going to do? I canceled that trip and flew home to North Carolina to be with my sister, who has since, you know, recovered um, and is is stable. Um, The second time is at the beginning of COVID. We actually made it all the way to London before we found out that our tour was canceled. So we had dinner in London and flew back to California. 
the third time, wow. which was October of last year, the tour got canceled because there weren't enough people. So <laughs> this was actually oh my, goodness. my fourth attempt. And I told my sister, you better be in good health. I told all my family, listen, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going on that trip. So all yes. of you better be on your P's and Q's. So yes, it was, yes. it was definitely, definitely a bucket list trip. Yes, I would have told everybody, stay home. I will Uber Eats your food. Exactly. Don't leave. Exactly. Take off work. Just don't leave. Exactly. Don't leave the house. I'm like, are you coughing? You don't don't start coughing. Don't don't start yes. coughing because I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'm glad that you were finally able to make the trip. That yes. that's definitely on my on my list. Um, not just my bucket list, but I feel like I want to get out to the continent and go yes. to different countries Absolutely. a few times. But What's uh? What are three more places that you'd like to travel to? So I would like to go to Kenya. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to Amsterdam um, this year um, after the Christmas holiday, and I would like to spend some time also in 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 Paris. Oh wow, that's a that would, that would be a great trip all in yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You're going to have to uh, share some of your travels, you know, when you get back from those trips. I definitely will. Yeah. Come on back. We got to get an update. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Dr. Marie, what is your favorite season? Oh, I love the fall. The beauty of the fall when the leaves are changing colors and the gold and the red and the yellow. That's my favorite time. And the mosquitoes go away in the fall. Yes. Oh, they go away everywhere. Yes. Even here in Florida, they yes. go away. Yes. Um, Dr. Marie, what is your favorite dish and describe one feeling that it gives you? Well, I love making, um, my husband's from New Orleans, so I love cooking um, food from New Orleans. So I like to make um, crawfish pasta because it has Ooh. a lot of cheese and it's warm and it's gooey and it's just very, very comforting um, to eat that. It just feels like a nice big hug, you know, when you're eating that. Oh, oh so do you make etouffee? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I, I need to come to North gumbo, Carolina. <laughs> I make stuffed bell peppers. Yeah, I make all of those things. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. You have an open next, invitation. Next trip. Next trip. I, I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> you're welcome. I'll be there. <laughs> okay, last question. If you can pick any four people to go to your favorite dinner or you can cook dinner for them you can choose any four people they can be dead or alive or fictional so at this point in my life i would choose i would choose my mom who's who's deceased my dad who's deceased and my two sisters who are also deceased I would choose wow. to have dinner with them now so that they can kind of see the that all the things that they poured into me um, and all the, the support, you know, that they gave me that, you know, I'm, that I'm here and I made it and I'm doing okay. And, and hopefully that they'll be proud and, you know, all of the things that they taught me and all the advice, even during the times when I did not listen because I didn't think they knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, I absolutely would love to go to dinner with them just so that they can see, you know, I'm okay. You know, I, I, I made it. I did all the things that you told me, even though you didn't know I was listening, I was really listening. And, uh, for the most part, you know, I would say to my dad, you are right about all of the, all the things you told me. Oh, I love yeah. that. 
I love that. That's a like a like a dinner in honor of them. Yes, absolutely. Yes. What would you cook? What would you cook for them? Gosh. Well, my older sister really taught me how to cook. My mom was from Georgia, and so they cooked a lot. So I probably cooked some collards for them, and candy yams, mm. and macaroni and cheese, and some fried chicken, and probably some chitlins if I had time to clean. Ooh. <laughs> That sounds like a great yeah. little family reunion, yeah. like a, a beautiful dinner. And then a homemade pound cake. Yes. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm over here just like looking at this little <laughs> smoothie that I drank. <laughs> Listening to you, like it's uh, making my mouth water, but it's okay. The smoothie is better for you. Trust me. Smoothie is better for you. Uh, if you say so. <laughs> it absolutely well, thank is. You. It is, it is. But, you know, once in a while, once yeah. in a while, I could do that. But um, thank you so much for playing Fast and Curious. Um, that I loved all your answers, and I can't wait to hear about more of your travels. Yeah, that was kind of fun. I like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> now we are going to get into, you know, really the bulk of, well, why is Dr. Marie here? Um, you guys, I had a conversation with her. Me, I'm trying everything kind of runs together in my brain when it comes to these calls that I have before I actually do the recording. Um, but I remember just feeling actually, I'm going to share a quote with you guys, <clears throat> and I think this is one that you shared during our call. Uh, and it's actually a Bible quote. I know I don't share too many, I don't share too many quotes on here, but especially Bible quotes. But this one, I was like, I need to write this down and bold it, and it was. Corinthians chapter 10, 12 through 16, for all, all the people that have Bible Bible quotes uh, memorized in their head. <laughs> um, and it's, and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Mm-hmm. And I had to sit with that one for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what what does that quote mean to you? You know, we go through a lot and, you know, just in our day-to-day lives, right? Just the normal part of our lives. And sometimes, you know, some of those things are heavy. And I consider myself to be a spiritual person, although I don't go to, to church all the time. Same. But I know that God is here, right? And there's always these tests that we're going through. And I think that if you, you, you have your faith and you have your belief, um, and sometimes it seems as though, you know, he's not listening or no one is listening. And sometimes I'm like, can you just send me a text message or something? Because I know you're trying to give me a message, but I don't know what it is. But, you know, I just believe in my heart that he's there, you know, for us and to support us and that he gives us tools, um, you know, to use, um, in order to be okay and that we just have to have faith that, that our, that our path is, is being um, ordered and that he's still there, you know, lifting us up on those days when we didn't even know how we got off the bed. Mm. Yes. That is so, that is hundred percent. I, yeah, that, when you said that, that quote stuck with me and that was something that you should have seen my notes. That was something that I like made bold (laughs) Mm -hmm big you know made the font bigger but i think that's something that it's really easy to forget in mm-hmm. times where things are a little bit rough right or a lot rough right. very rough mm-hmm. um it's easy to forget that if if faith is something that you walk with mm-hmm. 
And if spirituality is something that, that you have in your life, that it's easy to forget that when times are hard, but it's like, those are the, those are the times we have to really lean into mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm, lean into our faith. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you, uh, you decided to write a book. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell us, tell us a little bit about the book and kind of what inspired you to decide to sit down and write a book. So here is my book. It's called Getting to My Enough, A Story of Faith, Resilience, and Survival. And I had pondered writing this book for years. I had been journaling because, you know, your, your thoughts at some point, you know, you have to get them down. And sometimes you don't feel like you can talk to anybody else about your thoughts because of what you're going through. Sometimes it feels like you're the only person, right? So I would journal a lot about my about my feelings, about the highs and about the lows. And so it wasn't a journal just when things were not going well, but it was just a journal of, you know, the transformation that I could see that was happening in my life. And as a human services professional, I understood the vulnerability of, of individuals who are going through certain things at certain phases in their life, whether they were children or teenagers or adults. And being a, a human services professional is really a part of the fabric of who I am. And I really, really got to a place where I knew that I was doing all of these things to help other people heal, but I was neglecting the most important person, which was myself. And I hadn't really shared my story with a lot of people. It was difficult to, to strike that balance between being a sought after human services executive managing upwards of, you know, 14, 1500 staff, being seen as a certain person who had it all together and was educated and, you know, smart and, um, but not, people not really understanding and didn't really know what I was going through on the inside. And so as I started my journey of post-traumatic growth, I knew that part of my growth was going to include being able to tell my story and being able to start my process of healing out loud from the internalized trauma and the shame that I held as a result of being sexually abused by an adult family member um, between the ages of seven and 10 years old. So writing the book for me was, was for two reasons. One, so that I could heal. And two, so that I could help people to understand that you can be an executive living in the suburbs, traveling abroad, wearing designer shoes and in designer clothes and still have anxiety. And I really wanted to put a face to that because especially in the African-American community, we don't talk a lot about um, mental illness. We don't talk about depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, any of those things. And because of that, you know, there's a lot of internalized pain and shame that we hold and if people do not get the support that they need, um, it can have very devastating physiological and psychological consequences. Mm. I want to, well, first off, thank you for, for sharing, you know, I think it's for, for choosing to be vulnerable today, mm -hmm. because I think, I don't think that talking about uh, experiencing sexual trauma, nonetheless, childhood trauma, um, that's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly within our community, there is a very hush, hush, right. uh, generational, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. We're just going to, we're just going to ignore it. Mm -hmm. So I think 
I do. I just want to, for one, thank you for being able to share that, but also applaud you for being able to share that with others in the form of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you've got events as well that you host, and we'll get into that a bit later. But later, but um, I want to talk a little bit about prior to the prior to you sitting down to write the book. I know you mentioned journaling mm-hmm. was something that you decided. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put everything in there, positive, negative all of those things. Was there a certain point where you felt, was there any certain point where you felt like, okay, now it's time for me to share my story. I'm ready. You know, when COVID hit in, you know, 2020, it really changed the fabric of all of our lives, right? You know, what we were doing and how we were feeling and where we were going. And for me, I'm like a 60 hour a week work person and, you know, burying myself in things to do. I always have something to do. But when COVID came along, I think it really forced a lot of us to sit with ourselves and to stop all the things that we were doing to keep ourselves busy, to keep ourselves our mind off of the things that were really happening in our lives. At least that's what happened to me. And so when I really started sitting with myself and um, I was going back and forth between North Carolina and and California um, for work, I was working on site in California for a week and then I would work remotely in North Carolina. But still, it wasn't the normal, typical 60 hour work week that I would normally have. And so I started spending more time in my head because there were less things to fill my head with because I wasn't working as many hours as I normally worked. And things were kind of slowing down a little bit, you know, we're just prioritizing more. My grandkids were being homeschooled. And, and so, you know, it, I was really sitting down with myself more than I had done in a long time. And so then my thoughts started a lot. And then I think that's where the anxiety started creeping in because I didn't have all those things to fill up the space that I was used to filling up so that I wouldn't be thinking about other things. Mm. And that's just when I decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and get this book written. I need to get this book written. I need to start my process of of healing out loud. I need to be able to, to show people that you can go through trauma. You can experience trauma, but you can also heal from that. And you can experience post-traumatic growth. And so around 20, one is when I really jumped into it and 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 got the ball rolling to to finally um get it done. Wow. So 2020, I mean, I think 2020 obviously was a year of chaos, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's uh I don't want to say great, but it is um warming to my soul that so many people like you experience this point where okay, I am feeling all of these things. Now, what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, I know you talked about post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. and you've mentioned it a couple times. Can you tell me what, what does that mean for you? So post-traumatic growth really is a process that you go through when you're, when you're trying to heal. You're trying to get to the other side of the pain and the anger and the blame and the shame that you dealt with when you were going through whatever happened. It could be sexual abuse. It could be physical abuse. It could be domestic violence. But that post-traumatic growth is really when you're at a phase when you know that you want to heal. And that's going to look different for everyone. Some people use therapeutic interventions, um, therapy and medication. Others use um, um, healing practices such as working out, which I'm an exercise enthusiast. 
um, meditation, yoga, reading, gardening, whatever those hobbies are, and getting to a place where you are recognizing that you are enough and you are not what happened to you. And you don't have to wear the, the title of, of, of a victim. Um, and then you can work through your own process of resilience. And that's going to look differently for everyone. But that, that post-traumatic growth really is helping you to get to the other side of, of, of where you were mentally um, in that place when that traumatic experience happened with you in your life. Hmm. I like that post-traumatic growth. Can you talk a little bit about when it comes to healing and, you know, finding your healing? What, what does, what did your healing look like? And, and did somebody teach you that? Did you have a support system during that time? What did that look like for you? So writing was part of my healing process because it was really cathartic. Um, in terms of support system, it's really interesting because, you know, in the Black household, what we were taught is what happens in our household stays in our household. Mm. And so I'm 59 years old, um, and um, I have um, a couple of siblings that are still living, and we, we didn't talk about it because I knew that it was not a conversation that they were ready to have or that they could have because they were in a different place. And so a lot of my conversations and support really were in my own head. And then as I got further along in my writings, I decided that I was going to share um, a portion of my writings, which I, which I, I had, a mo I was also doing motivational speaking, but I took one of those motivational speeches and I turned it into a chapter. And I asked five of my closest girlfriends to read that chapter. And these are women that I have been friends with for 25 years or more. And I was thinking that, you know, these, this is a part of me that they don't know about. Right. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, four out of five of the women had the same experience that I had as a child. Wow. And we didn't know that about each other. Wow. And so they automatically became that sense of support to me. Wow. And it was, it was challenging because everyone's at a different stage of healing. And some, some of, some of my friends have not even gotten to the place where they're even going to talk about it openly, mm. but they can listen to me and what I was going through. Also being in the human services field, you know, I have had a couple of, of, of close friends that I had developed over the years that I could talk to about, say, Hey, you know, I want you to, you know, have something to share with you. And this is what I've been going through. And, you know, kind of as a sounding board and, you know, I've had some, some pretty open conversations with my husband because he also knew about my trauma. I, I talked to him about that before we got together. Um, and so, you know, having a support system is, is, is very, very, very important. And I think it's important for people to know that that support system does not have to be 15 people. It could be mm -hmm. three or it could, it could be five. Um, but it's, 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 it's very important for you to be able to have a circle of people that you can go to and have these authentic conversations with about your experiences as a part of your own healing. Yeah, 100%. Community is big and that's something mm -hmm. that comes up often on this podcast. And it's, it's um, also, not only is community big, but I think it's, it says something that you and your friends have been close for 
20, 25 years, I think you said, and nobody knew that about each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there is such power when you decide to share. Right. Right. Because you are ultimately kind of freeing yourself, but also giving other people the keys to start to feel that same sense of freedom. Right. Because there's that sense of shame that, you know, I held that sense of shame for so long for my, for myself, even up into my, you know, forties or so. Um, and so, you know, many of, of my friends and even people that I talk to now, when I hold my sip and heal events, you know, they didn't disclose until adulthood. Some of them disclosed for the first time in my, at my events. And it's mm. because of the victim shaming and the victim blaming in the internalized angst that you feel um, about, hey, did I, did I contribute to that? Did I do something wrong? Was it my behavior? And so there's this whole iteration of things that you go through and you blame yourself. And for me, you know, I just, I just felt like there was something in my behavior that, that must have been the catalyst for um, that happening to me. And is that, do you feel like some of that shame, because I feel like shame around, particularly around childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. in the black community I think shame takes a a certain form like you're saying where there is is it my fault and because nobody wants you to talk about it and Mm -hmm. for some people they do decide to tell somebody when they were younger or at some point and they decide to share and there are points where it's met with disbelief where it's met with it's your fault Mm -hmm. because of what you were wearing Uh or you shouldn't have been over there or I told you not to go over there because I warned you. Right. So I feel like shame, you know, and I, I think I can only speak for, for our community, but I think shame for in these particular situations, it can, it can shift and kind of take this weird shape um, that I guess just kind of like cements as you get older. But can you talk a little bit about, how to how to get rid of that that shame and kind of like that healing process for anybody else that has maybe had a similar experience and is still in that stage of shame i think the first thing that you have to do is forgive yourself and that was big for me is forgiving myself um i came to recognize that it was obviously the perpetrator's fault And also, if you look at the statistics, unfortunately, um, one in four girls and one in 13 boys has been sexually assaulted by the time they reach the age of 18. Over 90% of those perpetrators are family members or known family friends. Hmm. And so the more I understood about the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse, the more I educated myself about it, the more I read and researched about it, the more I began to acknowledge, accept and acknowledge that what happened to me was not my fault. And so I had to forgive myself for blaming myself as part of my own healing process. Mm. I, I want to talk a little bit about your profession, because like you said, for years, you were able to be this professional that that never quite confronted this thing Mm -hmm. that happened Mm -hmm. during childhood Mm -hmm. 
And I know you said human services professional, but for somebody that's listening, that's like, I don't really know what that is. Can you explain what that is? So I work in the field of of social services, human services. So um, child welfare investigations, adult protective services for abuse and neglect investigations, um, working with individuals that have behavior health issues or substance abuse issues, um, working with at-risk youth, which we identify as youth that have behavioral issues that maybe are on a, a path to um, end up in ju- juvenile hall or some other type, committing other types of crimes. You know, kids are in the foster care system, um, those that were on public assistance. So people will hear about, you know, food stamps and Medi-Cal and cash assistance. So everything in the, in the human services arena, I work with everyone in that population. And so these are mostly vulnerable populations of people that are at risk and need some type of help or assistance to manage the dynamics or the, the, the function or dysfunctions, you know, that are happening in their lives um, as a way to help them move towards self-sufficiency, being independent, being, you know, owning a home, having a job, getting <coughs> educated, being employed. So choosing, how did you choose that career? Because it seems like my assumption would be there, there's got to be certain points of that career where you're kind of triggered or maybe kind of, you know, I don't want to say re-traumatized, but triggered from what you've possibly seen. So how did you choose that, that career and how did you kind of balance what you were seeing with potentially being triggered by the things that you, that you went through? So what's interesting, I talk in my book a lot about my, my parents being um, separated and my dad raised myself and my seven, seven, six siblings and my, and my niece. So seven of us, um, eight of us. So, and that was an anomaly, you know, back in the seventies. But what my dad also did is he became the de facto father for all the boys in the community that didn't have a dad. And it was nothing for my dad to bring a kid home who was supposed to stay for the weekend that ended up staying like a year or two. And I'd be like, oh, when is he going home? Or she, <laughs> she, she's in my room, you know. <laughs> and so in spite of the, the challenges, the personal challenges that my mom and dad had, they both had really big hearts. My mom ended up being a, a registered nurse. And um, so always doing things helping in the helping field. Um, My dad was always doing things in the community. You know, my sisters all worked in the the nursing field. So I come from a family of of helping professionals. So I think that's really what was embedded in my spirit. But even more so, I think that I wanted to do things to help other people who might have experienced things similar to me. Um, I had a lot of struggles, you know, um, growing up as I kind of slid into adulthood, you know, dealing with the childhood trauma, you know, you age chronologically, but you don't always age, you know, mentally. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that um, there were things that I would have needed to heal and to get better that I didn't have. And I wanted to be um, a facilitator for other people that needed those types of services. And as a way, in a way, I was healing myself as well. I think the most of my triggers probably came in my last 10 to 12 years of my career when I was working with child welfare. And so when there would be a case that came across my desk of, you know, child abuse, if it was physical, it was, that was egregious. But if it was sexual, that was even worse. 
And so in those triggers, what those triggers created for me was more of a passion to make sure that we were providing quality services to children and families, that we wouldn't make children feel like it was their fault, that we wouldn't blame parents, you know, this was your fault, that we wouldn't take on that that persona, that we could break that multi-generational cycle of dysfunction and child abuse and domestic violence and all of those things. And so I use those triggers to become more passionate and to become more engaged in the work that I was doing, um, whether it was teaching my staff how to make sure they treated people with dignity and respect or making sure that I would be an advocate for, for families and children because I knew what it was like to be on the other side. If we were in today's times, back when I was a child, probably if someone found out about this, we would have been, I would have been removed from my home. Mm-hmm. And that probably would have been it. Um, but, and so I wanted to, I wanted to change the dynamics of, of child welfare and also the perspective um, that many have around people that are seeking help um, in social services, because, you know, there's a whole population of people out there that think that if you're receiving services that you're not good enough or you didn't do something or you're not educated or you're not trying or you're lazy. And I really wanted to shift that whole perspective. And by doing so, I was healing myself, you know, case by case by case at a time. Wow. Do you, do you feel like it was like that played, obviously it played a a part in your healing, Mm -hmm. but did any of those experiences inspire you to journal or were you journaling throughout life? Those experiences really inspired me because, you know, I could, I could go back and take a look at the things that we did well, the things Mm -hmm. that we may not have done so well in these cases, but I could also look at our successes. I could also look and see this child is really getting what they needed, or we got a perpetrator out of the home or, you know, we've gotten these children to a safe space and, you know, looking at um, trauma-informed services for them. So, you know, changing the way we provide um, child welfare services because it's really a, a, a rote system in some places where you just go through the motions, but really mm-hmm. changing the way that we that we work with families and, and children was really, a, really something that was important um, to me because I knew what it was like to surrounded by dysfunction Mm. that's it's inspiring to see your journey from you growing up where you spoke about your dad kind of also being a human services we won't say professional but like the neighborhood human services Mm -hmm. professional Mm -hmm. and you're just doing it in a professional setting Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to see that um, how big of an influence that had on your life and mm-hmm. then also how much it helped in your healing. So again, going back to community, um, but also going back to vulnerability. And I think being able to be in those spaces and still be triggered by certain things, but to, in a way, overcome it mm-hmm. to help somebody else in the way that you needed help, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about how you're continuing to help people, not mm-hmm. just through your book, but mm-hmm. through some of the events that you're running. So can you tell me a little bit about Sip and Heal? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I launched the Sip and Heal events back in April of last year, and I had my first one. I'm very proud. I had my first one at UCLA in the Black Girl Congratulations. Center. And so I was very excited about that. 
but I really wanted women to have a, a safe place that we could talk about things like relationship issues and imposter syndrome and mental health issues, um, feeling, you know, not feeling like you're enough. And so I really wanted to create a safe space for women to be okay to have these conversations about healing out loud. And so I started having um, these events in April, as I mentioned last year. And since then, I've had them. I've had multiple in California, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, and here in North Carolina. I'm having a, a big one this weekend. And I read excerpts of my book. And then we have guided discussion questions. And we ask questions like, you know, tell me about a time when someone told you that you were not enough. Um, my first question to them is um, they pick an affirmation. So I come with all these different affirmations and they get to pick one and choose one and take it home with them. And I say to them, tell me why you chose that affirmation and then tell me about who you are. Don't tell me that you're a wife or a mother or a teacher or a pastor. Tell me about who you are at the heart of you. Because you know what? A lot of us, we don't really know because we've been so many other things to so many other people. And we talk openly about mental health, you know, about, you know, how to, how to have these conversations. You know, my mind hurts. I'm not feeling well. How to be able to reach out and say, I just need to go and talk to someone. We try to destigmatize that. So in the guided discussion questions, it's interesting because I start with a list of 10 guided discussion questions. I may get through seven because after one person starts talking, everyone starts talking. And that's really what I want for them to start talking about some of those deep-seated things. I mentioned earlier that people have disclosed sometimes for the first time that they were sexually abused or that they were in a domestic violence relationship. I also give them the 10-question ACES survey at the beginning. Um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences survey at the beginning so I can see who's in the room. And that survey um, is one that was part of a study that was conducted by the Center for Disease Control in Kaiser Permanente in the 90s. And it looked at over 17,000 members of a health maintenance organization. And it was asking questions that related to, you know, physical, mental, and emotional health. And these 10 questions um, were able to help doctors determine whether or not someone was at risk for early death due to physiological issues such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and stroke, or whether they were at risk for certain things such as having sex by the age of 15, um, getting pregnant, homelessness, substance abuse, and other mental health disorders. And so that really helps to break the ice in the room because people are able to say, wait a minute, there's some research behind the things that I have been going through because according to the survey, if you say yes to four or more questions, then you're more at risk for those things that I mentioned. My ACEs mm. score is a five. Wow. And, so and what's the score out of? This one, is the ACEACE. Yes, it's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. There's 10 questions. And so if you answer yes to four or more, then you're at higher risk for early death because of the things that I mentioned before. And so this past weekend, I had an event and one of the persons had a score of nine. Wow. Nine. That must be a very emotional 
moment for them to it's very in a way kind of like be validated like oh my gosh i have been through a lot right like wow we laugh we cry i have a list of resources that i refer them to be it therapy for black black men um cerebral nami Mm -hmm. 988 and i try to create local resources depending on where i am in the event um there was also a later study that was done um in 2019, and the CDC analyzed 144,000 adults in 25 states, and it indicated that 16% of them had ACEs of four or more. Wow. And the study also indicates that um, a third of Americans have at least one ACE. So everyone has gone through some type of trauma. So in these events, it's really an opportunity for us to, to talk openly about ways to break that multi-generational cycle of dysfunction, how to have those tough conversations, um, learning to have conversations with your kids about how, what your experiences have been, open conversations. So, you know, that secrecy and if this happened, Mm -hmm. you know, don't tell your mom, don't tell your dad, how to educate ourselves. And most importantly, you know, how to get to your own place of healing without that embarrassment and that shame um, that we deal with, especially in the African-American community. So they have been really amazing experiences. They're all emotional. Um, but at the same time, that's part of the healing, is recognizing that you have those feelings that we have buried and hidden you know, for, for so long. Um, I have not had um, an event where someone didn't have at least one. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's it, I think it speaks to the power of again the power of community, but also community that is led with that has resources. And I think being able to do things like the ACE survey mm-hmm. in a group setting yes. where it's a little maybe less intimidating mm-hmm. than doing it on your own, mm-hmm. but also maybe less because um, I feel like sometimes you go into a doctor or a therapist, mm-hmm. and if you haven't. If you're not, if you're already not comfortable being in a doctor's office, going to see a therapist can be quite intimidating. intimidating. And not that this is a substitute, mm-hmm. but I think this is a part of the healing. The plane mm-hmm. in my head is what healing looks like, which is this plane of all these different resources. And I think for us, in particular, Black women, having community events like this mm-hmm. where it's safe, mm-hmm. you can be open. And, and get get to a place where you're comfortable enough to share something you may not have shared. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe even, maybe you're not sharing, but maybe you walk away ready to kind of confront and start to heal those things. Right. Um, is very powerful. And they answer the survey on a jot form. So it's completely anonymous. So yeah. I don't know who answered what. But what I normally do is say, if you're comfortable, if you said yes to one or more, raise your hand, two or more, raise your hand. Mm. And so, you know, when they open up, they're ready to start having this conversation because I've already gone through, you know, the why we're here and they know about my background. So we start there so that I can talk about my ACEs throughout my readings Mm -hmm. and some of the things that I did to, you know, try to work through that impact that they had on me. And I also say to them, if you're not ready to have the conversation today, 
that's fine. Here is a list of resources and you can always call me offline if you need help getting some support. And so those who share their numbers, they are doing it, you know, on their own. But once you open up that conversation, you've got to leave them with some resources. And what I'm working towards is in the future is being able to actually have a therapist on site um, so that if they need to speak to someone immediately, that there would be someone available because there's a lot of emotion that comes out of these, um, these events. Wow. Well, are you, are you just curious? Cause I know we have a lot of amazing therapists that listen to this show. Um, is this somebody that something that you're looking for in like every city or state that you have these events in? Yes. And so whenever I go to a, a certain city, I always try to add that, that individuals or someone actually, people I'll, I'll actually reach out to me and say, Hey, can we be listed on your, on your resource, on your, on your website and those types of things. So absolutely would we'll be looking for anyone who's, cause I would like to have these in every state, um, you know, yes. across the U S so it'd be great if, if there were any therapists that even do online therapy. Um, because one of the most common things that I hear is, it's difficult for me to find a therapist who looks like me. It's difficult to find yes. a therapist who understands my culture and my background. And there's such a disparity amongst, you know, amongst our, our, in our, within our healthcare system in terms of access to care anyway. Access to okay. care, insurance, um, I understand that people want to be in therapy with people who look like them, but I also encourage people to not let that be the reason why they don't go to therapy. Yes. As long as you can find a therapy that understands, you know, cultural humility, that understands the nuances that we deal with as, as people of color, someone who's trauma informed, someone who has done the work to really understand some of the differences and things that we deal with versus you know, non-African-American people. So if they can understand that, then I, I, I encourage people to not let that be a barrier for them not seeking the services, you know, that they need. Because, you know, my, my primary care physician is not African-American. My dentist is not African-American. My eye doctor is not African-American. I certainly would try to look for an African-American therapist first, but if there was not one available, I would, I would seek out because I have, I have had had a therapist before that was not African-American. And I think he really understood a lot more than um, yeah. I initially gave him credit for. I, I love that you said that. And in a way, I think it's it was time for this to be said on the podcast because every, everybody that listens to this podcast knows I'm very um, pro find who you need. Mm -hmm. But I think even more important is to find someone that is able to help you at that point in time. Yes. And maybe yes. down the line, mm -hmm. if that changes mm -hmm. um, and you end up finding somebody, whether that's a Christian based therapist, yeah. whether that's a therapist that's not based in any type of spirituality or religion, whether that's a black woman therapist, mm -hmm. whether that's a therapist that focuses on LGBTQ mm -hmm community, whoever it is, but I, I 1000% agree. And I don't think I've ever talked about that on the podcast. So I thank you for saying that, but the main priority is that you need help mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So finding somebody that it may be a trauma informed therapist, finding somebody that may be uh, culturally 
and I'm forgetting the word right now. Culturally competent. Culturally competent. Uh (laughs) A culturally competent Mm -hmm. therapist asking all the right questions in that intake interview to make sure that they are a right fit because you are interviewing them just Mm -hmm. as much as they are getting information from you Mm -hmm. um, is super, super important. So thank you for, uh, thank you for calling that out. You're welcome. The other thing that I want to mention about the sip and heels is that I, I teach women how to use positive affirmations. Um, Yes. That is something I wanted to ask you about. I know you've got positive affirmations, I think you've got a whole chapter of them mm-hmm, in your book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about, first off, I want to know what your what your favorite affirmation is, maybe one that you use often or maybe one that you use mm-hmm. uh, that you say at the Sip and Heal events. Mm-hmm. And I also want to know why it's important for you to have positive affirmations mm-hmm, in your book. Mm-hmm. My favorite one, and I actually have my grandkids say the same thing, you know, I'm strong, I'm smart, I'm confident, and I'm amazing. And I believe that you become exactly who you say you are. And, you know, growing up, you know, I used to hear, well, you know, don't be conceited, don't be overconfident, you know, you know, that's arrogant when, you know, you act like that or say these things. But that self-love is the first component of identifying who you are. We cannot wait or should not wait for other people to tell us that we are anything. We have to tell ourselves that first. And I think that so many of us have have held on to that belief that it would be too conceited for us to say that we are, I am beautiful. You know, I wake up in the morning, get dressed. I'm like, you look good today, girl. You look really good. Oh my God, you are rocking it today. There's nothing wrong with that because I, when I, if I walk out of here and I feel like I am rocking it, I am absolutely going to rock it. That doesn't mean I don't have butterflies in my stomach about what I'm going to do or who I'm going to talk to, but I've already told myself I look good today. Um, I I am going to feel good today. Today is going to be a great day. You know, sometimes my grandson wakes up grumpy. I said, don't start your day like that. You know, you're going to start this day in an amazing mood. You know, I think it's important for people to think positive. You know, who wants to get up and say, oh, my God, it's going to be a crappy day. I'm going to do a bad job at that presentation. They hate me. I don't like what I'm wearing. My head is too big. I didn't tie my hair up last night. You've already failed before you walked out the door. <laughs> mm, you really have. Yes. It makes such a difference. Yeah. Like that mind shift, the mindset shift from when you wake up. And even if. Because I know for me, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and sometimes it's halfway through the day. I'm like, okay, I got this. Mm-hmm. I'm smart. I'm capable yeah. of this. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm good at my job. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got this. Absolutely. And it makes such a difference in like, okay, you know, you're sitting up a little straighter. Your yeah. shoulders are back. Mm-hmm. And like you said, even if you're nervous, even if you're still having maybe like some imposter syndrome, yeah. even if maybe a lot of crappy stuff has just happened mm-hmm. the day before or mm-hmm. that morning. But I think that mind shift and it's not just a one-time thing. Right. Like you said, you've got to use it. Mm-hmm. It's like a muscle. You've got to use it often, yeah. but it makes such a difference in just, I know for me in the way that I look at life mm-hmm. when I use mm-hmm. positive affirmations. And the interesting thing about these sessions is that I have to drag it out, you know, give me a positive <laughs> information, affirmation. I have to drag it out. Like what, why am I dragging it out of you? It's like we're we're hesitant to say that we are amazing, that we are intelligent, yeah. that we are educated, that we are whatever. We we hesitate to say that. 
But yeah, we'll see. Do you uh, feel like, Dr. Marie, do you feel like any of that has to do cult with culture? Because I feel like growing up, if you are, if you do, you know, maybe this was just when I was growing up, I felt like if you were extra confident and, you know, somebody was ready to humble you and knock you down, oh, absolutely. whether that be like a little joke, whether that be just like bagging on you and telling you that you, you're not hot. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're not that good. You're not that smart. You think you're smarter than everybody. I think that's really easy for people in our culture to react to strong, confident black women with like, let me just knock you down a little bit. So you remember what you're supposed to, you know, where you're supposed to be. And I think that makes it tough to be confident and like to hype yourself up and be, you know, it does make it, it does make it really, really hard because all the outside forces are telling us that we're not good enough. When we, when we, sometimes when we're at home, you know, when we go to work, when we go to school, when Mm -hmm. we're out in our community, when we watch the news, you know, we're all of these negative things. And then sometimes there are other people that are just not happy within themselves and they're going to find a way to make you feel Mm -hmm. bad. And that contributes to a lot of things, including imposter syndrome, which I also talk about in my book. And so you're always going to have to have those people, but that's where that self-love, you know, has to come in at and, you know, one of the things that I say, if, if I, if this person is, is, is upset with me, it's probably not about me. It's yeah. probably about them or whatever they're going through. They feel this way about me. I, I'm not going to take responsibility for how you feel about me. I know that I'm a good mm. person. I know that I try to do the right thing. Um, I may not be for everyone. I may not be for you. You may feel a certain kind of way because of me and who I am, but I'm not going to take responsibility for how you feel about me. And I'm not going to say that I'm any less strong, smart, confident, amazing, beautiful than I was 10 minutes ago because you're giving me this energy. Yeah. And so once you can recognize that it's not about, it's not about you. It's about those people who, who gain their own power by minimizing other people's lives and what they have done so well because they don't feel good about themselves. But it takes a lot to learn that and to be able to absorb it when you're surrounded by that all the time. When you walk in a room, um, especially as a Black woman, a Black woman executive who oftentimes was was one of two or three other Black executives in a room full of non-African-American people, when they purposely try to make you feel that you don't belong there, it's hard for you to mentally say, it's not about me, it's about them. It's It's hard. So you you have to develop that exterior, which oftentimes leads to the anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? And so that's where a lot of that, you know, comes from, you know? And so it's really a process. It's really a self-talk process. It's really a self-love and a self-care, you know, process that you have to continuously be undertaking. Um, Otherwise it will wear you down. It will absolutely wear you down. Yeah. You've got to practice it for sure. Yes. It's like, it's for everybody else out there. I know you like to train, you like to work out. Mm -hmm. I think it's similar. It's like, a mental gym. Yes. Like you've got to go hit the weights. You've exactly. got to hit those affirmation weights. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and make sure your your affirmation muscle is strong. That way when you go out into the world and people mm-hmm. are ready to knock you down yep. or that little voice in your mind is ready to knock you down. Right. You've got to be ready 
right. you know, with that next affirmation. I'm good at this. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm great. And mm-hmm. I think the more we do that, like you said, you're passing that on to another generation. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, a lot of us didn't have positive affirmations. Right. So the fact that you're passing that on, it, it's a it's a great thing. I want to, um, I do want to ask you, what is your, I think I asked you what your favorite affirmation mm-hmm. is, but what is, uh, what is your affirmation that you would give to somebody, someone who has experienced the same childhood traumas that you've experienced mm-hmm. and they're at a point now where maybe this is like the first step in their journey of healing? What affirmation do you give that person? I would tell them to say, I, I am worthy. I am enough. And I matter. Mm. I am worthy. I am enough. And, and I, I matter. matter. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. You can start your journey mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Dr. Marie, I want, sh- uh, I know that your book is called Getting to Your Enough. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just give me a little bit of like right now in this space, you've come a long way with your healing journey. Now you're in a place where you're not only inspiring others in your career, but you are inspiring others Um in community events, you're inspiring others with your book, with sharing your own thoughts from your own journal. What is your getting to enough, getting to your enough look like for you? My getting to my enough um, includes knowing that I, I love myself for who I am. I'm not a perfect person, but it has taken a long time for me to be mentally strong and okay with the place that I am now. I'm not comparing myself to other people. I'm cheering for everybody else. I'm helping other people to heal out loud and get to their place where they're enough. Um, I'm a mentor. Um, I'm I'm a friend. Um, That that is, um, you know, my healing process has helped me to be a better mother. Um, a better wife, a better grandmother. And so that enough for me is knowing that I get up every day with my intention to do my best and I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave it all on the table and I'm going to wake up the next day and I'm going to start over. And I know that I don't have to seek any outward validation to recognize the person that I am and who the person I have become internally. Oof. I need a little applause button because that was, that was awesome. No, I really appreciate, um, I could, I could probably talk to you for another hour, but I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but Dr. Marie, I, I appreciate you coming on today. I want you to tell everybody, um, maybe where your next sip and heal events are going to be and also where they can get your book and anything else that you might have going on. So I have a Sip and Hill event this weekend at the Charlotte Library on um, South Boulevard. You can register through Eventbrite. I have another one on July the 22nd at another library in in, um, Charlotte. So I'll be at the libraries in Charlotte for the next several months. And they can find out this information on my website, which is www.mercadelconsultingsolutions.net. And they can also order my book there as well as any other retailer, including Amazon and, and Barnes and Nobles and Books a Million. Awesome. So make sure you guys um, go grab Dr. Marie's book. I know I'll be grabbing it. Um, once I finish it, maybe we can reconnect and oh, give you guys an update. I would love to. You know? I would love to. Yes. 
I've got a big stack of books that I just am working my way through, but yes. we're going to add it. We're going to add it up there, but um, I'm, I'm super excited to get into, get into your book, getting to your enough. And I am really thankful that you took the time out to come on the pod and talk about um, what you're doing, but also what you've been through and not being afraid to be vulnerable and um, just giving everybody else permission to also free themselves up from that trauma that, that they may have experienced. So thank you so much, Dr. Marie. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Let's stay connected. Oh, yes. You can come back whenever you want. The <laughs> okay. door is open, wide open. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Yes. And for everybody that's listening, I just want to thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. I will make sure that Dr. Marie has links, that I have links for all of Dr. Marie's um, website, books, everything is going to be in the description. And um, yeah, I appreciate you guys uh, listening today and I will see you next episode. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal. <laughs>